y'all, and welcome to The Table Podcast, where everybody gets to take a seat. I am Isaac, your host, and I am here with the lovely Anne. Hey, y'all. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I've been like dreaming about when you were going to come on here so we oh could talk because I love talking to you and I feel like people just need to listen to when we talk because <laughs> I feel like we like just do and say great things always. Yeah, we always cover a lot. We start, you know, at point A, end up at point Z for a hot second. But in between, we have not been bouncing around from point to point. It's been like, so we went over the rainbow and then back down the mountain, swam in the river for a hot second. A full river. A full river. (laughs) (laughs) Not some little crick. No, like an actual river. It's a good time. Yeah. Um, So introduce yourself. Tell us about you. Yeah, so where to start? I used to be able to give a full, like, hello, my name is Ann Sasslin. I'm a major in this, like, tour guide introduction mm-hmm. when I was a tour guide in college. But <laughs> I don't know. I feel like right now me introducing myself is just saying, like, I'm in process. Like, okay. I'm a graduate student, so I'm pretty much always, like, reading a bunch of stuff, trying to make it work, and, like, rethinking myself in a lot of like very deep ways but also rethinking my relationship to the subject matter Mm. I'm working with and so I'm just in this process a process of learning a process of self-becoming a process of learning to forgive of Mm. forgiving of finding the parts of myself that are problematic and that I need to work on um, which encompasses all of the different identities I hold some of which are more salient than mm. others, but yeah, I'm in process. That was like, how do I even like introduce <laughs> myself now? Like, how are you, Isaac? I'm flying. Um, really, where are you flying to? What are you flying with? Yeah, what like, are you flying above? Deeper <laughs> than what I introduce myself. I can't say, oh, "Hi, my name is Isaac. I'm this, this, and this." I have to be like, "Hi, I'm Isaac," and. I am swimming through this river, and, you know, I'm in process. Like, that was yeah. just such a good answer. I don't know how to, Aww. like... Thank you. Like, that was, like, <laughs> ah! Like, it was thought out and process. Like, you're processing <laughs> through the process. Well, see, the thing uh, is, I'm so much better when I'm speaking mm-hmm. because it forces me to slow myself down a little bit, whereas when I'm writing... It, I'm either moving too fast or I'm not moving at all, and I'm just staring at that little cursor blinking at me on the screen, giving me a panic attack. That's right. Or I'm literally moving at, like, 300 miles per second. Mm-hmm. So when I have to stop and actually really listen to myself, it helps me think it out so that it is a little bit more processed okay. than, you know, this very, like, roughly hewn thing that I'm throwing out onto the page. I also like poetry a lot, so (laughs) that comes out sometimes when I speak. I like that. Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's get into the appetizers. All right. So, since it's, like, episode four, I've been doing this for how long? A month now? I know. This is wild. I just, I don't even know. How, How have you liked the podcast so far? Yeah. So first off, I'm just like so proud of you for doing this because you've been talking about it and talking about it and you were like, screw it. I'm going to do it. And it's been awesome. <laughs> I've list- I love that you were like, yeah, I'm going to do episode one and then episode zero because <laughs> I'm Isaac and I can do whatever I want. And I was like, this is very you. And I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. I have a podcast app that has about like almost 300 different podcasts that I listen to on a That's- fairly 
regular basis. (laughs) It is a lot, but I am very much a listener. Mm -hmm. I really like to listen to what other people have to say. And especially because I do come from a place of being a white person, Mm -hmm. you know, when people of color and people who don't hold the same identities that I do make a podcast, it provides this really beautiful way for me to listen to their voices without necessarily like having to sit down and have a conversation Mm -hmm. with them and being like, tell me about your experiences. Tell me about the oppression you face. Like they can make this beautiful piece of art. They can have this conversation that is not meant for me, but I am a lucky enough to get to sit in on it mm-hmm. when I listen to the podcast and get to learn from them and hear what they have to say. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I, when I say yours is one of my favorite, I'm not just saying that because we're friends. I'm saying it because there's this sense of authenticity that comes out of mm-hmm. it, and You know, it it is, yes, oftentimes you sitting with your friends talking about these really important topics, but it has a very different feel to it than some Mm. of the other ones I listen to that might be a little bit more professional or have a little bit more funding or, you know, maybe... You know, I just think of all of these ones where it's like, you know, host sits and interviews somebody and it can feel very rote after a while. It sort of falls into this pattern. Oftentimes the host doesn't really know everybody as well. But because you really have these built connections with Mm -hmm. all of your guests, there's just this extra level that's there. And there's this different type of intimacy that you're able to build with the people you're talking about. And you get, and we were talking about this before, Mm -hmm. like you get really deep, really fast. (laughs) Literally, that's me as a person. Really deep, really fast. Sexual, (laughs) 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 But that comes through and it's not like flattened or taken away in any way. I also have to say, so I know you and Javon and Anthony were joking, like, let us know if you want to listen to us just talk about, like, comics and Marvel and DC. I would listen to you all talk about that stuff for hours. Especially, and I have one. I want to hear the three of y'all's thoughts on, so you talked about the Run the Jewels song Mm -hmm. that was in the Black Panther trailer. That same song was actually used in the first trailer for the Ta-Nehisi Coates comic book. Wait, what? Yeah. When they were promoing his first issue, they actually used that song in the background and they spliced it together with like images from the comic book Mm -hmm. and him talking about what this comic does, who Black Panther is, and his version. Version, and it's that mm-hmm. same song and I was like I want to hear what they have to say about like Love. I just have a conspiracy theory about like using that specific song to market and like also add this very um, what's the word I'm looking for not visceral but this this very I don't know how to describe it this like very intense mm-hmm. sort of blackness yeah. to the story of Black Panther. Like, I think, I can't remember if I read it or if the three of you talked about it, but like the audioscape, the soundscape of mm-hmm. Black Panther and how important it is yes. to get it right. So, having this one song be attached to two different versions of Black Panther, I was like, I need to know. Oh my gosh. Okay, send me the link. I'll drop it at the bottom of like, <laughs> like the notes at the bottom so people will be like, okay, like, what are they even talking about? We'll figure that out um, later. But yes, thank you for that. Like, that just. That just gave me so much energy. I just, good. I feel good. That was good. Yeah. I mean, I listen to myself. Like, I probably <laughs> listen to it three times before I actually post it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, by the end of it, I'm just like, gosh, I wish I said something differently. But, like, 
it's interesting how much I like have learned to like challenge myself even mm. in just like listening process oh, yeah. and stuff like and figuring out who I am as a person because like when I'm in here and I'm with um like if I'm here with Javon or Jamila or mm-hmm. like Cassie I realized how I switch or how my conversation or coding works its way through mm-hmm. and like I'm learning a lot about myself in this process a lot more than I think I wanted to. Because um, <laughs> yes. I have to, like, grapple with, like, wait, so I do actually think like this. Like, when I was talking about hoteps and then all of a sudden I realized mm-hmm. that I was, like, empowering hoteps for, like, maybe 30 seconds. And oh, I was like, yeah. wait, 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 wait. Like, Isaac, back up. Why were you, like, answering the question like this or, like... Stuff like that. So, like, I'm having a great time. I'm happy to continue this journey with you because I've been yeah. waiting for this. Literally, I told you <laughs> when I was going to make this podcast, I was like, you're going to be one of my first guests. I can't wait. This is going to be the best conversation ever. And it is. It's going to. Good. So, I have a qu- I have two questions for you. One is, oh. can I ask you questions? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Two. So, then my second question. So, you, I loved what you just said about this like you're learning about yourself and rethinking yourself through the mm-hmm. process of listening to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I like that a lot because I'm in film and media studies in addition to being in women, gender, and sexuality studies. And I think a lot about sound and how in the West we are so visual. Mm-hmm. Every It's like everything is through the eyes. We don't think about the other senses quite as much, which is why I liked so much of your podcast with Jamila where she just kept talking about these really intense felt like sense memories and sensory memories where it wasn't just like it it oftentimes wasn't something she was seeing it was something she was smelling or hearing or tasting or like literally feeling on her Mm -hmm. body so to get to the question (laughs) is do you feel like this process of learning about yourself through listening to yourself is very different or different at all from like you know how when you read something you wrote Mm -hmm. because you obviously are going to learn about yourself through that as well yeah I think it's a lot easier to critique what I say than what I write. Mm. When I put something down on paper, I can go back through and read it and proofread it as much as I want to, but at the same time, I don't know why I'm proofreading it. I'm proofreading it for the audience. I'm not proofreading it for me. Mm -hmm. Now, when I listen to myself, it's out there. It's gone. There's nothing I can do to edit it. There's nothing I can do to... um, like curate it in a different way that people will have to read it differently other than me writing it and saying like this is what I really meant Mm -hmm. when I said this this and this so it's interesting because I feel like this is a more authentic version of myself rather than it being something that I have to like perform or like it's more it's less performative and like writing is very performative in nature in my opinion just because you're not writing for only yourself. You're writing to an audience. Yeah. Where here, because I'm purposefully bringing in people who mm-hmm. I know and I feel comfortable with, I might say something in here that's completely and utterly problematic, and I'm going to be like, but I know that like the person in this room has me mm-hmm. and is going to give me enough space for me to move forward with it. So therefore, I'm like learning more about myself and learning how to unpack that because like I'm not perfect, so... like. I could, like what I say on this podcast is literally just Isaac being Isaac, and like that's all I got. <laughs> like that's all I have. Yeah. No, I like that answer. Mm-hmm. It's good because I think so much about the voice and how it's for us. It's more intimate in a mm-hmm. way because it's less mediated, and by that I mean you know we don't 
when we write, we have to pick up a pen and take the words that are in our brain, write them out onto this page, and then somebody has to pick up that page and read it from the page. Mm. Or we have to type it out and they have to read it from the screen. So there's all of these different steps to like getting our message across, which is not to say messages don't get lost when we speak them out, but mm. it just comes out into the mic and then to people. There's less sort of steps yeah. to getting it there that's real yeah this is the film and media studies and right. media being well, that like... Was like that makes so much sense because it's we can literally just talk about this <laughs> <laughs> like, but it makes a lot of sense though just because i think about like the way that i receive messages especially like watching videos or watching somebody say something mm-hmm. and how like i'll receive it yeah. and process it but like i'm processing it from where i'm at and then like projecting what mm-hmm. i feel into the space like through writing or through typing or whatever I need yeah. to do to, like, explain that feeling. But it's yeah. more of a feeling of, ex- like, I have to explain it. Mm-hmm. Where if I'm talking out here, like, I can be explaining myself, but, like, you can hear my feeling. You don't have to, like, know exactly. what I'm feeling. You hear it. Or you're, like, questioning what I'm feeling. or like yeah. So it's, like, I feel just more intimate. It's a lot more intimate. Yeah, because you can hear, like, the tremors in somebody's voice. You can hear the voice go up, go mm-hmm. down. Like, you can – there's all of these, like, emotions, like you were talking about, that are right there that are not not there mm-hmm. when it's written out. They're just experienced in a very different way. Just, like, you know, somebody might do really well with a lecture but have a hard time reading, yeah. you know, a 30-page academic article because <laughs> – yeah. <laughs> But like thinking about all of these kinds of things, this is this is part of the process I'm in. Yeah. Right now. Yes. Yeah. I love the process. <laughs> the name of this podcast is the process. The process. The, the, <laughs> the process. Oh, gosh. Okay. I have more questions. Okay. Um. So, what is, or what does a perfect world look like for you? Oh gosh. And then you sent me that question. I was like, I don't know how I. <laughs> I'm going (laughs) to answer that. And I don't know if we can ever get to the perfect world, Mm -hmm. partly because the type of feminism and the type of social justice work that I tend to align myself with is we are always in process. So the perfect world is both this goal, but it is also something that is created through the process, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So... I don't know what it would look like necessarily, but I kind of know what it might sound like or okay. what it might feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, but how to describe that, you know? That was an answer that I needed. Like, really? I needed you to answer it like that, and I feel like that's why I asked you that question because I knew that you wouldn't give me like the textbook of like oh yeah well like this would be fine and liberation mm-hmm. would be the answer and everybody would feel equal and like diversity <laughs> like quotas would be met and it wouldn't be a bad thing yeah. like because it's much more than that like the perfect world is more of a feeling it's yeah. not a descriptor and I feel like that leads into more of the work that you do that I want you to explain <laughs> right now. Do you see what I did there? I so see what you did there. You're so good. I see. I told you you were good at oh, this. Look. 
these. That's right, hair flip. Hair flip that I don't have. <laughs> like, I mean, I can't really hair flip anymore since I shaved half my head, three quarters of my head. Three quarters? Three half. quarters, whatever. I mean, I used to have head. curly hair down to my butt, so. I know. I, I haven't seen a picture yet. I need to see a picture. Okay, yet. I will show you a picture at some oh point. Gosh, please. I'm so excited. I used to have, it was like mostly hair. <laughs> but it was weird because people, did, like, then a lot of, not the same microaggressions mm-hmm. that people of color, especially black people face, yeah. when it comes to their hair texture, I faced similar ones. Like, in middle school and high school, people would literally, it was called boinging the coif. They would walk up and they would literally, like, pull on my curls as good luck before a test. And I would go to hairdressers who just, like, didn't know how to work with my hair. It was we- – it's a really oh, weird experience. <laughs> and I don't want this to be me, like, saying, like, I face the same oppression as black people because mm-hmm. that is not what I'm saying but at I mean, all. Like, but, like – even with that, like, different hair textured people yeah, have, like, similar ex- like experiences. Which is why like I think I am so wary of giving this, like, vision of the future because – I understand that while I have faced some of these, like, invasions of privacy, yeah. it's very different for me because of my whiteness. And mm-hmm. I don't want to sit here as a white person saying, like, and this is my grand vision for the future because mm-hmm. that's problematic. Yeah, like, yeah. that is what, you know, philosophers and most of the white world has been doing and mm-hmm. continues to do. And me just, like, perpetuating that. Yeah feels really wrong like I would rather enter into this process of you know co-creating the space with other people so that it is not my space it Mm -hmm. is our space and I get a little bit of that Mm -hmm. but not any more than anybody else but it's not about equality it's much more about equity Mm -hmm. and making sure that like everybody's needs are actually being met so instead of my space it's like Facebook our Twitter. See what I did there? <laughs> I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is I'm like thinking too deeply about it. So like I understand that you made a joke and the joke went right over my head. <laughs> it's way up there now. When you said MySpace, I was literally like, and saying something really important right now. But all I'm thinking about is social media. And I'm like, I need to be on that human. It was um, a good joke. But yes, so. Yeah. Your work and what you do. Um. So I I know mm-hmm. every like not everything but I love <laughs> listening to you talk about what you do. So please explain to the people who listen to this podcast um, what you do and what your work is around in your PhD program. Yeah, so uh, my work is very multifaceted. I have a couple of different projects that I like to work on and that I'm very lucky to get to work on in the ways that I do. So the first thing that I do, which is sort of like the work that my dissertation Mm -hmm. will be on, whatever form that dissertation takes, because luckily, because I do a lot that deals with art and technology, I might not have to write this like 300 page magnum opus. I Mm -hmm. might be able to write more of like an artist statement and then really go about creating these artworks or these video games or these technical pieces that Mm -hmm. get across my message in another way. So I'm excited to explore that. But this project is all about the idea of what I call the embodied android, or I have often called this embodied android the trans droid, Mm -hmm. because I sort of started thinking about this android or robot body from a perspective of trans studies and transgender identities and embodiments. And uh, I know you and I have talked about this a lot in the past (laughs) with how we create 
these robots that are supposed to look human and we oftentimes create them in very specific images. We create them out of porn portfolios and profiles, meaning that it is a very specific, oftentimes over-sexualized body, which has a lot of extra ramifications when we start moving. I mean, it already has big ramifications mm-hmm. if we're talking about a white robot body, but when we start looking at different skin colors that get added to robot bodies, we need to start talking about all these things. So. What would it mean for there to be this robot body that actually lives and experiences a gendered identity or a racial identity or a sexed identity or all of these at the same time? What would it mean to have this robot that is differently abled, which could mean that it is much stronger than the human body. Maybe it doesn't have, you know, an entire body because an entire body wasn't built for it. But looking at all of these different identities that we talk about when we start talking about intersectionality and how does this relate to technology, but also being very cognizant of who's creating these robots Mm -hmm. and what purpose they are being created for. I work almost entirely with what I call sexualized, sexed, and sexy technologies. Mm -hmm. So looking at technologies that are like specifically given a sex or specifically meant to be used for a sexual purpose, whether that is a dildo, there are all of these new sex robots that are coming out. and It's getting bigger than I expected. Yeah. There are all of these think pieces about, well, what if, you know, you can just like rent an hour with a sex robot or what would a sex robot brothel be like? Can we start having all of our sex workers be robots so that real humans don't have to engage in sex work? And there's all of these very problematic things that are being said. But at the same time, we can also look at like, look at how horribly we treat sex workers and individuals who engage in sex work in this country. What does it mean to then just like push it all off onto something that is really not human, you know, because we already deny the humanity of sex workers. So we're just going to make it not human at all. Exactly. But does that mean that we can then do whatever we want to this sex robot body? There was one at um, I think it was Ars Electronica, which is this big technology and arts festival that happens in Austria Mm -hmm. every year. And a new like highly anticipated model was debuted and they like broke her arm and destroyed other parts of her body because the mostly men, mostly white men who were at this conference were just all over her because they didn't view her as a her. They viewed her as an it. They viewed her as this sexualized body they could do whatever they wanted with. And this was a white robot body. What if this had not been a white robot? You know, then we have to add in those extra layers and we need to be talking about these things now because it has actual ramifications for real people's lives. But also, once these robots do become sentient and do become conscious and are able to move through the world in whatever way that means for them, like we're going to have to reckon with what we as humans did to these robots because we saw them as lesser because they weren't human because we saw them as lesser because maybe they weren't white or because we saw them as lesser because maybe they were a woman instead of a man um and all of those kinds of things so that's one of my projects and did air quotes when said man and woman and i think that's important to notify people about um, <laughs> gotta keep gotta yeah keep. <laughs> gotta let these people know that we're actually like in here 
killing the binary too. Yep. <laughs> the air quotes are everything. Well, one last question, then we can take a break. Yeah, well, there's one other project I want to talk about real Ooh, fast. Go for it. Yeah. Go, 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 go. So that's like my main academic project. But then on the side, I also work on what I call trans inclusive intersectional pedagogy, which yeah. is basically the fancy way of saying I try to make sure that the classes I work on and design and get to teach are as inclusive as possible. Meaning that, yes, we will read some Bell Hooks and some Audrey Lord, but we will absolutely go beyond them because I don't want my students to just get these like two token black feminists i want Mm -hmm. us to get other people like i am going to be bringing the work of zakia jackson who's this really phenomenal uh scholar into my classes uh going beyond just some of these like especially because right now i'm teaching intro to women gender and sexuality studies so it's like this is what race is this is what gender is this is what class is like really making sure that i'm forcing my students to think intersectionally Mm -hmm. but because i also have that trans inclusion part, making sure that my classes are absolutely uh, encompassing transgender identities and embodiments, but going beyond just violence against black trans women Mm -hmm. and violence against trans women Mm -hmm. to talk about trans joy, trans, you know, euphoria and self-care and all of these kinds of things. Um, But making sure that these, that it's not just we talk about one thing one day, but that we keep bringing it back in. And that's also how I do a lot of my workshops that I run through KSTEP, which is the Mm -hmm. Kansas Statewide Transgender Education Project. I'm working on building a trans self-care workshop with them right now. I'm excited about it. Um, I do a lot of like intros to trans feminism, intros to non-binary identities and things like that with KSTEP as well, Mm -hmm. which all goes back to just this, you know, pedagogy, this way of teaching but at the same time, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with me being obsessed with like the idea of the voice and different learning styles, mm-hmm. trying to bring that into the classroom as well, because so many classes are so writing intensive and that's just not the most authentic way or sometimes the easiest way for students to express themselves, or at least if it's gonna have to be a writing intensive course, do we always need to write an essay? What if sometimes we like write a poem, or if a student wants to write a rap, or if a student wants to write me a short story, and that's how they're gonna get across Mm -hmm. that they understood the meaning. So that's sort of my other side project, which still influences my first main project. Because the process. Yeah, and everything is connected. I know, I love it. Yeah. Okay, last question. Okay. Why are we friends? Oh, my gosh. So I've been thinking about this one a lot, too, because I've been listening to the podcast and I knew it was coming. And it's so it's really funny. I can, like, pinpoint the exact moment you came into my life because we tell this story all the time because it's a good story. It's a really good story. Do you want to tell the story? I love this story so much. So back when... We both first got here. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to a, what was it, a seminar, workshop? I think it was technically like a retreat. Yes, it was a retreat. But it was like this KU Quest retreat. Mm-hmm. And um, a very queer, inclusive space. I was really into it. I was ready to go. I was like, I'm going to meet all the family. <laughs> it's going to be lit. And so we were sitting there, and it was a little awkward at first. But um, I started complaining about how I love RuPaul's Drag Race but hate RuPaul. And Anne turned around so gracefully and so quickly, and I was like, tell me about RuPaul. And, like, it was just, like, it was such a good conversation. And in that moment, I was like, me and Anne are going to be best friends forever. (laughs) Nobody's going to take Anne away from me, and they're the best. It was so good. 
Yeah, it was. It seriously was one of those like grayish, like full body terms where like the arm goes from the right hand of the body to the left hand side of the body. He's like, "Tell me about RuPaul," because I never. I've been watching RuPaul's Drag Race for years. Like when I first started coming out to myself, I used to watch like the original seasons, like seasons one and two on my laptop underneath the covers at like 3 a.m. because I was terrified my parents would find out I was watching it. So for me, as this young like baby queer, RuPaul's Drag Race was so important and so formative. And then as I got older and I started to, you know, wake up to a lot of the different things, I realized like how problematic parts of the show can be and still are, but especially like RuPaul, how problematic RuPaul is, yes. <laughs> and how because of the position that Ru holds within the queer community, within the drag community, just sort of in general as this now mainstream sort of pop icon, nobody's willing to criticize Ru. Yeah. And having somebody sitting behind me, like starting to, <laughs> to do it, I was like, I, I have to meet this person because we have so much to talk about. Um, but there's also another part of this story that you don't know because uh, I've never told you. So oh, gosh. <laughs> no, it's a good thing because um, you, you talked about how you were like going to meet all of the family. And that was a large part of the reason why I was there. And I have this ex who mm. we call only Fuckboy. We never speak his name. No, we don't. We don't. Uh. Um, but the night before Quest had been the first night I had ever been with him. So I had mm. woken up feeling like really weird and unsure because even that early on, like lines of consent had started blurring and mm-hmm. being crossed. So I just like really needed a good sense of community that day. Like I needed to feel like I belonged at KU mm-hmm. and I met you and you're okay. one of my best friends ever at KU. And we got to have that conversation and then we continued it and continued it and here we are today on your podcast, and Fuckboy is gone. God, and that's all In a that different matters. country. Yes. Oh, so good. That was a lot. I didn't even know that first part. Yeah. That was the second part. And now I'm like, I don't want to cry here. I keep oh. telling myself I'm not going to cry here, but I feel like every time I come in this like, studio, I ask that question, I'm about to cry. Well, we'll take a break. Yeah. So I to, like, if I start crying, they can't hear me sobbing <laughs> on the other end of this. But we'll be right back. And we're back. Um, so we're back with dinner, sir. Mm-hmm. And are you ready for dinner? I am always ready for dinner. <sighs> yeah, I like to eat. Um, Me too. And I'm not vegan anymore. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I was trying so hard to be vegan. So I eat about like 90% vegan, which okay. is obviously not full vegan. But sometimes I just need a hamburger or so a chicken real. wing, especially because so. Grad school does not pay well. Right. So I work at the library on campus, and then I also picked up a job at Dillon's. And my job at Dillon's, it's like 20-some hours a week of, like, very physical work. Like, I do a lot of lifting and a lot. I mean, it's capitalism. So I literally pick one thing up, put it in another place with a whole bunch of other things, and then pick all of those up, put Mm. them in another place, and do that for about 25 hours a week. Um So because of that, because it is so much heavy lifting, like even when I was, you know, eating extra nuts and like trying as hard as possible to get non-meat protein into my diet, I was like, I just, I would go home and like binge on a pizza or just have to go and like get a burger or like Mm -hmm. literally go buy a pound of meat and cook it up and was like, yeah, like as much as I appreciate veganism Mm -hmm. and what it does but also recognize a lot of the problems with it mm-hmm. as well. I was like, I just need to be able to like eat some meat every now and then completely yeah. guilt-free. That's real. I, 
we could literally go down that we could. because <laughs> I, the struggles of veganism vegetarian yeah veganism. well there's actually already a really good podcast i think i had recommended to you called the racist sandwich yes yeah and they have a really good episode on being a person of color and vegan at the same time mm-hmm. and then they went back i think and did another one just on like veganism in general yeah and then there was this new documentary that came out called what the food yeah I hate that documentary yeah, I don't like so documentary, but it's causing much. Everybody. I do like the videos that have come out of it where people like go to the grocery store and they just like show a video of all the cheese and they're like, do you know what this is? Diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we could literally talk yes. about it. I'm just going like, to drop my like two cents into the, the space of, yes, I tried to do the vegan vegetarian thing and it caused more problems Mm. for me at this moment in time because of where I'm at. I feel like being a grad student, you can make it work, but Mm -hmm. if there's so much other things that you have to do or, like, different identities that you hold, it's impossible to make it work. And I Oh, yeah. And it also uh, depends on how, like, hardcore you're committing to veganism. Like, are you also going all organic or Mm -hmm. do you allow yourself a couple of things every now and then? Or can your honey not necessarily be entirely, like, can you eat honey? Like, things like that. And it's also like, I'm a grad student. I don't have time to be doing, like, the food prep and the meal prep to be vegan and to also actually make sure I'm getting everything I need. Right. And, and then also to do the coursework. And exactly. Sure like and like get the money so that you can actually be vegan. Right. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is a good segue into <laughs> okay. what, we're, what we're supposed to, well, not supposed to. We can talk about whatever we want to talk about. But um, what we're talking about when it comes to like allyship mm-hmm. or um, the way that identities affect the way that you move through the world. So Mm -hmm. I guess my first question is, what, how do you feel about allies? Like in general, like allyship as a term, allyship as like identifier for human beings, like Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? Yeah, I have to use like, you know, the Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton phrase. I have evolved Mm -hmm. a lot or maybe... Did, no, no, Obama didn't say that. It was just Clinton who said I she had evolved. I apologize <laughs> for misspeaking. It was just Hillary Clinton who was like, and I have evolved on queer rights and such. Because um, there was a time largely back when I was feeling really lonely in undergrad where I did think that allyship was important and was a good thing. I There were times where I actually said, like, no, well, like, the A in LGBTQAIP, et cetera, could be for ally, which... No, like, I I, I just want to, like, go back and be like, Anne, no, no, like, no. And I remember when one of my friends was like, no, Anne, and I was like, wow, you were very right. Allies can kind of sometimes do good work. Um, I tend to go for solidarity mm-hmm. in terms of actually doing something, because I feel like with allyship it ends up being really close to advocating which is the i am doing something for people Mm -hmm. rather than doing it with them and using the privileges i have to help them advance what they need Mm -hmm. um because you know the advocating is absolutely just like i'm going to be speaking for you whereas allyship is a little more nuanced and a little bit more subtle and also more performative i think sometimes because it's not just the performative speech act of me saying like and i am speaking for blah 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 and on behalf of these people because they 
they are so oppressed. But when you get allyship, you've got people who are not just saying things. They're also doing things, and they think they're doing it for the right reason. But oftentimes, they're not actually really reflecting on Mm -hmm. what they're doing and who they are while they're doing it. Right. Which I think is why I tend towards solidarity. And I know other individuals use terms like accomplice, Mm -hmm. but I also have heard mostly people of color call for accomplices or call for people to stand with them. I, I can't think of really any like white people I know of who have said like, I am an accomplice or I want accomplices. So I use the word solidarity because I don't want to be taking a word from a community that I don't belong to. But it still has that. It still has all of the actual work that goes into it. Like it isn't just me saying something and me doing something. It's me really thinking about like, well, what does it mean for me as a white person to do this? What does it take for me as a person who can sometimes pass as masculine to do something? What does it mean for me as somebody who can sometimes pass as feminine Mm -hmm. to do that? What does it mean for me as somebody who has the privilege to be a teacher of a women, gender and sexuality studies 101 class? Like, what does it mean for me to do this work? And then how do I do that work? in the way that is making it not about me, Mm -hmm. but making it about the voices that have never been given a space in the academy Mm -hmm. and the the voices that still aren't given a space in the academy, whether that is as scholarship or as students. Yeah. That was like the best answer. I I think a lot about (laughs) this stuff because I get that like, as a white person, I have so much ridiculous privilege. I get that as a mostly able-bodied person, Mm -hmm. I also have a ridiculous amount of privileges. I have a life-threatening peanut allergy, so I need to be really careful about that, but it doesn't affect me on the daily, the same way that different abilities and different Mm -hmm. um, disadvantages might. Mm -hmm. Um, I also like know that I'm still learning to talk about a lot of these things, but like just trying to be as transparent as possible with my students, Mm -hmm. because part of the reason I struggled so much with teaching in the beginning was because there's this always already unfair like power dynamic there of like my students suddenly feel like they need to give me this perfect answer. And if they Mm -hmm. don't give me that perfect answer, I'm going to hate them or I'm going to judge them for not being feminist enough or not being woke enough. And it's like, y'all, I'm up here, too, and, like, struggling through this stuff. I may have woken up to some stuff a little Mm -hmm. bit before you and, like, know how to talk about it a little bit more. But there is all this other stuff I still need to wake up to. Mm -hmm. So, like, just keeping all of that very present in my mind so that when I go into the classroom and go into this space, you know, where I do have students of color, like really being cognizant of what that power dynamic means for like mm-hmm. me as a teacher and them as student. Yeah. I like how you like frame that though, because mm-hmm. it makes me think about um, even the way that I have to learn a lot of stuff, because like as somebody who is like seen as very masculine, but like has um, is very effeminate mm-hmm. or um, I grapple with this um, dynamic of like, how my masculinity um, is like very, very privileged, and then, mm-hmm. but I'm a masculine person who acts effeminate, so therefore it's like diluted in a way, but I'm still very privileged in the fact that I'm masculine, or like battling, not battling, but like grappling with yourself around like mm-hmm. what privilege really looks like, or how I feel privileged in this instance, but compared to this instance, or the, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, it's not as binaric as I think people want it to, th- like, mm-hmm. they want to believe allyship or um, 
like being an advocate or anything of that nature, like supporting somebody else who is different than you are, how a lot of times people just stop thinking about the power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Like they're doing this work and they're listening to this person who's telling them, like this person of color who's telling them all of the things that they need to do, but mm-hmm. not taking into um, consideration who this person of color they're listening to, like what privileges and stuff that they have to. So like, it's this like this huge cacophony of like mm-hmm. who is like privileged in this instance and who's not, and it's kind of overwhelming in like the way that activism and like allyship because I don't have any other words, um, but like how that all like runs into itself, and it makes me think about another thing that I will kind of want you to speak to, um, mm-hmm. with the way that oppression is utilized by certain people as like a scapegoat Mm -hmm. and how oppression is this buzzword that like if I'm oppressed and I talk about my oppression that Mm -hmm. I need to be supported although I can also be privileged through oppression and I don't want to like a lot of people don't grapple with that it's like something happens and they it affects one identity of theirs and they like yell into the void because we have social media and all this other stuff to complain about not complain but like air their grievances about the situation and how Mm -hmm. that looks, but how that can also be criticized and um, questioned and how it's important to criticize and question those things, especially in this day and age, because all the time we have people like our president say something and everybody can have criticized and talk about different things that they have. But it's like, okay, he's our president, but Mm -hmm. I can also recognize like different like oppressive things that have happened to this president that I can sit here and say are the reason why the president is acting this way mm-hmm. but am I allowed I'm like am I supposed to allocate him that space do I get the same space also mm-hmm. like how much space am I supposed to give to these certain things if we're like talking about one thing I don't know I feel yeah. like I'm rambling at this point there's a lot of things <laughs> that like, we can talk about from here for sure one, I think neither you nor I would ever get as much space as the asshole in chief yes. because we have minoritized identities, whereas he really does not. Like mm-hmm. when I when my advisor, Dr. Katie Batza, she likes to use the circle of citizenship a lot mm-hmm. uh, when talking about privilege and oppression and especially obviously when talking about citizenship. And I've used this in my own teaching as well, which is where there's this, you know, like ideal center mm-hmm. of the circle, which is the straight heterosexual, very masculine, cisgender male who is white, who has a lot of money, able-bodied, you know, et cetera, and so forth. We can keep listing all of the privileges Mm -hmm. that one would have to have and one typically has to be in the center. And he's pretty much in the center. He got elected president. And then the less privilege you have, the farther you move out from the center. Sometimes you're straddling, you know, the edge of citizenship. We can Mm -hmm. also think of that as the edge of humanity. Um, And then sometimes you are pushed out and then you become illegal. Then you become not a citizen. You become not human. And then your body, your identity, your person, every little bit of who you are, even the parts that might push you a little bit closer to the center or a little bit closer to that edge, they are ripe for abuse. Like, if, especially if you are not human or not a citizen, mm-hmm. you are absolutely never going to be given the same amount of space or time as the president or whoever other privileged, really privileged mm-hmm. person we want to talk about. Um, I think a lot of this deals with neoliberalism yeah. and capitalism because 
especially when you were talking about this, well, we sometimes never seem to get past, well, like, because I am oppressed and making it about me, mm-hmm. we don't a lot of times get past the me to bring it back to the we and back to the actual systemic structures mm-hmm. that have been put in place. Neoliberalism, and this is part of the reason why I no longer do work on Tumblr and Tumblr feminism because it was just too vicious for mm-hmm. me and just too vicious or too hard emotionally to watch people constantly just be relentlessly attacking each other and tearing each other down and I will never forget there was this one Tumblr user and I was looking specifically at trans exclusionary radical feminists versus um, mostly liberal feminists uh, on Tumblr and one of the liberal feminists was trolling the TERFs Mm -hmm. and sent them, it was like 15 knife emojis and it was something like a wall of knives for all you horrible TERFs Mm -hmm. or would like actively threaten violence against the TERFs and then the TERFs would be like, well, I'm all oppressed because I'm a TERF and like we would never get past that. It was just this like very negative side of identity politics where it's like because I have this identity and I experience Mm -hmm. oppression because of this identity I am the only person who can be right about this and it's like your oppression is valid your feelings are valid that is not what I'm saying but can we go beyond the I and the me because that's what neoliberalism wants us to do it wants us it wants us so much to just focus so much on only the individual level on only what is right for me but we also have to think about like the person right next to us who might also be experiencing oppression and what that experience is like for them mm-hmm. even if we hold most of the same identities right. and bring it back to the community bring it back from the i to the i who exists as a part of the we to the we that is the community that has to fight against all of the structures of oppression whether that is racism classism homophobia transphobia trans misogyny mm-hmm. uh trans misogynoir which is a very specific very type specific. of racial specifically anti-black mm-hmm. type of trans misogyny you know, we and of course these all interlock. It's not right. as if we can really just talk about racism or we can just talk about sexism. You know, we have to look at the ways they interact, but it's almost easier, I think, sometimes to just focus on the well, I have these hurt feelings because of my identity and it's me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't okay. know. I th- I feel like I'll stop no. there for a second. Yes, and I'll go. <laughs> because <laughs> When you started talking about identity identity politics, I started thinking about all of the ways that identity politics cause um, that divide that everybody talks about. It's like, oh my gosh, I wish like liberals and like conservatives could just come together and kumbaya. Mm-hmm. And like the reason why we're all dividing is because we can't see each other's point of views and blah, 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 blah. Which most of the time I'm like, no, I'm not going to give space to somebody who is going to call me the N-word. Like, of mm-hmm. course not. That's completely violent and you need to recognize it. That yeah. And at the same exact time, I recognize where space needs to be given and how space isn't given to certain people because mm-hmm. people will throw up walls and basically, like, segregate you from a conversation simply to make sure that they're their words and what they're saying is going to be centered. So, Mm -hmm. like, I'm thinking of any time that I bring up a conversation, I don't agree with another black person, um, and the black person is, like, um, femme presenting, like, sometimes it'll shut down the whole entire conversation because I'm being misogynistic, clearly because of my masculine privilege and my, Mm -hmm. like, cis privilege 
I am automatically like nixed from the conversation and whatever I said cannot like go into this space unless it agrees with what I've said. And like, which is fair. It's valid on a me, I kind of thing. When I'm talking to you personally and we don't agree, that's completely 110% valid if you don't agree with me and what I'm saying is out of pocket. Because if I, what I said is out of pocket and like, I go and do research and I realize like, yes, mm-hmm. what I said is out of pocket and what I'm doing and because I have access to it because of my privileges, like I can do that. Um, but at the same time, there has been a lot, when I think about identity politics, I feel like they erase the idea of like restorative justice or transformative justice mm-hmm. where you can have like candid conversations where you don't agree with things, but like both of those perspectives are very important in moving forward. Not necessarily like, fixing the like interpersonal relationship but fixing the like huge picture and then Mm -hmm. through that it's either like it's kind of like an upside down like move forward but like Mm -hmm. working from the system down to like get people to get why this conversation is important on this interpersonal level and i mean like the books that Anne gives me (laughs) help me so much through life um (laughs) and like the rev- what is the name of the book? Uh, the Revolution Begins at Home? Yes, The Revolution Begins starts at Home. home. Starts, starts at home. home. Doesn't begin at home, it starts at home. Um, that It talks about the interpersonal like relationships mm-hmm. within those kinds of spaces, but more particularly around like sexual violence um, and activism spaces. But... It, you can really like take that and use it when it was talking about transformative and restorative justice mm-hmm. because that idea of giving space to certain people or certain identities, whenever I'm on the edge or like I feel, I feel because sometimes identity politics can make you feel like mm-hmm. the way that you like identify at certain given times means I'm on the edge. Or I'm very much directly in the center mm-hmm. depending upon where I am at that day. Yeah. Um, It's that space, that part of like what you're talking about, like where I am that day, like space is so important, important. And we can think about that space on a variety of different levels, like where you are socially situated at that moment. So like which identities of yours are being privileged Mm -hmm. because of literally the actual physical space that you are in, you know, are you in a classroom and it's just the two of you or three of you? Are you on a crowded street? You know, is it late at night? Is it early in the morning? Is it the middle of the day? You know, who else is around you? You know, all of these kinds of things. I think it was was the first episode where you talked to Cassie. Yes. Um, And talking about wanting to just like go off on somebody in class. And I think you might have also talked about this a little bit with like Anthony Mm -hmm. um, and Javon. But like because of all of the white people around you, you can't do that. You can't actually like really be your authentic self. So like thinking about all of these kinds of things, too, where like it's not just about what you're saying, but it's also about like the actual spaces you're saying that in Mm -hmm. as well, which is why I think a lot so much about like me in the classroom where it's like. I try as much as I can to decolonize the classroom to Mm -hmm. make sure it's not just like me constantly standing at the front, you know, like talking down at my students. I will try to like bring myself down to their level and like sit on a chair so that it's not me taller than Mm -hmm. them who is sitting or trying to make it so that it's not just these like straight rows, but so they have little groups or trying to do the semicircle and Mm -hmm. really trying to 
do that kind of thing as well because I know that like in those moments my identity as a teacher has so much privilege attached to it to the point that sometimes really brilliant students will not say something or students who are brilliant but don't know that they're brilliant Mm -hmm. still don't say anything or they say something and then they feel stupid because of it or all of these kinds of things like identity politics can do some really positive things like validate identities and Mm -hmm. show their breadth and their depth Mm -hmm. But when it gets reduced to only the I level, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work. Because as soon as we go from the I as and to the we as you and me, like Mm -hmm. this is a community. This is a co-creation of space, a co-creation of knowledge. It's a fight fighting back against the systemic oppressions because we're speaking to each other about our identities and trying to actively learn from each other. And that is still the positive side of identity politics. It's when I start saying, well, like, but I'm queer too, Isaac, and mm-hmm. blah, 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 and start ignoring the parts of your queerness that I don't experience and mm-hmm. start saying, well, like, but I just don't understand why it's a problem when, you know, people say horrible things. I don't mm-hmm. want to repeat the things that people say on, like, <laughs> Grinder. Yeah. You know, like, there's, I'm, I don't go on Grinder because I don't identify as a man and I'm not going to mm-hmm. really find anybody on Grinder. But, like, looking at some of these, like, very constant, like, know this, know that, like, that is an absolutely violent part of your experience of queerness that I will never have. Mm-hmm. So for me to just deny that you have that experience and that you face that type of oppression and that violence, like that becomes another form of violence, which becomes the negative side yeah. of identity politics. I think, at the, like, and when I like cur- tried to curate, mm-hmm. because you know, this is a stream of consciousness conversation that I love. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, if it was anyone else, I'd feel like, I don't know what to say next. But, um, yeah, like, the thing is, like, I know nothing's ever perfect in the world. Like, everything's yeah. going to have its good and its bad. Um, but I feel like in my experience with activism and, like, education even with, like, my mm-hmm. women's gender sexuality studies stuff, like, identity politics is this, like, golden ticket of, like, mm-hmm. we have to talk about this and this is the way that we're going to do it because people's identities are, like, what's important. And it's taken me a very long time to unlearn, like, ever since I learned identity politics that, like... Mm-hmm. Me being black or me being queer, like, there's single portions of me that make up a whole entire picture. Mm -hmm. And, like, if I took all of my experiences and just, like, divvied them out, like, based on, like, this identity or that identity, like, Mm -hmm. they'd all be completely even. Because at the same time, everything that I've ever experienced affects me differently depending Mm -hmm. upon what identity I choose for it to affect at that moment. Yeah. And so holding that information and, like, with that kind of information, I don't feel comfortable much anymore, like, holding on to even any kind of identity. Because at the end Mm. of the day, it affects Isaac, my eye, but I know that, like, as a community, this is how that affects that community, and I need to talk to that because that's what people are going to hear and want to systemically work on. Where if I complain about, like, my own experience, I know that it's shared in the other, like, in the community space, I'm going to have to just talk to that. Because it's been, like, this internal struggle for such a long time of like I'm working so hard for me to like present myself authentically Mm -hmm. but realizing like my authenticity is going to waver and change based on who's around me Mm -hmm. um which is why this podcast space is like the only place like I feel like I'm 110% authentic because there's Mm -hmm. nobody constraining me to it or like if somebody listens to it and they like rebuttal like it is what it is because I said it already and I can't take it back and you still listen to it so I got one more <laughs> I listen to so I'm not even stressed but um, like 
it's so hard to, especially just working with people and moving forward and mm-hmm. trying to, like, be politically correct or, like, try to support or um, mm-hmm. advocate because, like, being an advocate in itself is, like, very difficult in my spaces and what I do. But, like, I don't feel comfortable even advocating sometimes because I'm just, like their identities are different than mine and I have read mm-hmm. all this material but like honestly like I've asked them everything that they need and they're telling me the complete opposite and I'm going to do the complete opposite even though my supervisor told me like this is how we're going to handle it mm-hmm. because I this moment this I and me moment this community moment is for them mm-hmm. like it's not for yeah. me to like project my own identities our feelings our stuff into it because I'm working and trying to do community. Yeah, it's about that decentering mm-hmm. of the self. The reminder that there are multiple centers. Like everybody is, of course, always going to be the center of their own life. But when you start getting outside of your life and getting into the collective life that we lead together mm-hmm. as a queer community, as you know, all of these other communities that we are a part of, you have to decenter the self. You have to remind yourself that, like, no, it is not about me in this moment. I need to be thinking about me in this moment and how I am relating to other people and how I am leveraging my privilege mm-hmm. or my oppression for specific gains. Like in these moments moments and in these spaces but at the same time it can't just be about you doing that it also needs to be the active listening so that you know like it doesn't matter what my supervisor is saying it doesn't matter what I would do in this situation like I need to do what this person is telling me to do does that make sense yeah I'm happy we got to this point yeah I also want to backtrack for a second to one of the things you were talking about which I think about a lot as well which is Um, this idea of like masculinity and thinking that just because you have a masculine identity like you have all of this privilege and that like you need to stop talking when a femme person starts talking and Mm -hmm. I struggle a lot with this because I've when we talk a lot about just like mask and femme even if we're talking about trans mask and trans femme it still tends to be very binary which doesn't Mm -hmm. leave a lot of space for non-binary people like me who can be more masculine who can be more feminine but sometimes just don't experience either of these or experience them both at the same time. And especially because I do a lot of work within transgender studies, academic trans studies is just so relentlessly focused on violence against black trans women and violence against trans women of color and then also violence against trans women. Mm -hmm. Like this is what most of the academic literature is on. When we look at who are the voices that are most commonly cited, it's trans women when we look at who was you know the trans tipping point in air quotes because let's be honest we have not hit the trans tipping point what What does time magazine do (laughs) they decide oh we're gonna put a black trans woman on the cover we're gonna put laverne cox on this cover and we're gonna reduce her to these couple of very specific identities that she has you know we are going to spotlight janet mock we're gonna you know spotlight all of these trans women like caitlin jenner has her Mm -hmm. own you know reality tv show But we don't really talk about trans men. We expect trans men to be largely invisible and not just invisible as in like they should be stealth or they should pass. But like we expect them not to speak at all about their experiences or we provide very limited spaces for them to talk about their experiences Mm -hmm. because they they have suddenly gained all of this male privilege because they transitioned. And yes, in some cases they have, but they might also have gained some oppressions because of that. I think, I don't know if you know Luke um, from Black Trans Men, Inc. Yes. Uh, He does this phenomenal talk where he talks about like, yeah, 
I get seen as a man, but now like people follow me through stores an extra amount because they're seeing me as a black man. And I've been with Luke when this has happened and I've mm-hmm. had to be like, no, no, it's fine. And like, you know, fight off these white people, not like fight them off physically, but like, <laughs> you know, tell them off. Like just because you're perceiving me as femme walking around this store with a black man, like you assume that something is wrong, like having to do those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, not at the same time, but then we also have this other situation where me, as this non-binary person, it's like, where do I fit into all of these big, like, academic discourses, which are also very reflective a lot of times of what's going on in activist communities as well. I absolutely think we should center the voices of the most marginalized, who are trans women of color, especially black trans women. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also need to remember that there are other people who have marginalized identities as well. Like, what does it mean to be a black non-binary person? Like, where are their voices? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be, you know, a differently abled non-binary Latina or Latinx person, depending on how the individual wants Mm -hmm. to identify themselves? Like, where are those voices as well? Which is why I struggle so much a lot of the times with this idea of like, well, the femme is talking now. We need to just listen to them. And it's like, yes, you face so much oppression because you are femme, because you are a woman. But at least you kind of get seen in a way, whereas me as non-binary, I just sit here and I'm like waiting right. for somebody to see me. I would love for somebody to see me as like sexually desirable. That would be phenomenal. But right. if somebody could just actually see me and actually yeah. hear me. You know, that's the kind of thing that we also need to make sure that we are talking about. Recognizing, again, that I have considerable privilege because I am a white person, which means my voice is automatically more likely to be heard. I am more likely to be seen than somebody who doesn't hold that privileged identity. Right. And I guess, like, to kind of wrap mm-hmm. everything up. So yeah, sorry. Move a little bit forward. No, it's fine because this is great because this is what I needed today. Like, honestly, at the end of the day, what I feel like activism should look like and what it should feel like is being seen. If I'm not in a space where I'm heard or like I've not necessarily like have to be at the center of the conversation, but I feel like what I'm doing in like in my everyday life, it's different than the spaces that I have to go to. Like Mm -hmm. when I go to work or if I go to my practicum or if I go to class, like there's days where I have to interject myself and put myself at risk to Mm -hmm. be seen. If I'm in a community of people or I'm trying to do this work to make it more equitable or something like that, I should also be very cognizant of how that feels to me and that Mm -hmm. shit and how I shouldn't project that on other people. And a lot of the times I don't think that's what's centered in activism spaces. Mm -hmm. It's centered on action and it's sitting in reactionary to something that's happened because a voice was taken, um, so mm-hmm. we need to center the voice of the dead person who can't speak anymore. But at the same time, we have to also recognize that there's people who are still living who we have to keep alive. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different ways and routes to go about it, but nobody's listening to everybody. Mm-hmm. There's still per- there's still voices that are being pushed over other voices. There's still things like the whole hierarchy of leadership and stuff like that, which is like... We got into the last podcast with Jamila talking mm-hmm. about like the way that we just need to re- just like rediscuss the way that we even do mm-hmm. liberation. Oh like, yeah, it has to be more inclusive than it already is, mm-hmm. and more inclusive in a very specific way. Where even if I'm in a space and 
my space is very intersectional. There's white people, there's black people, there's everybody in between that. There's Well, is that space intersectional or is it just fitting a diversity quota? See, that's difficult. Um, is, um, is it, I think it needs to, I need it to be intersectional. Mm-hmm. I need it to be intersectional. I can't fit a diversity quota because diversity quotas aren't any, like what I need. I need to be in a group of people who get it. Mm-hmm. I guess that's more what I'm saying. Like gotcha. they're willing to not be just allies mm-hmm. or like perform because they want to feel good about themselves that day. Yeah. I need them to be on it. And a lot of the time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you too. What just happened? Somebody just called me a she and told me I was beautiful <laughs> through the door of the I podcasting so studio. <laughs> I mean, I'm I am beautiful, but so I am not a she. But it's okay. Sorry that happened. <laughs> Yeah. Of all the things that could have happened, but, you know, <laughs> it had to happen. It had to happen. I don't think my point is valid anymore. <laughs> I just, you know what? We're going to take a break. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And we're back. So, Anne, mm-hmm. you're the first person to do this segment. Ooh. It was a name that I got from my roommate, Adrian. Shout out for it to Adrian for listening to all the podcasts and coming up with this brilliant idea. Okay. So when I get letters or messages from friends who ask me questions to talk about on the episode, Mm -hmm. we're going to call it Potluck because somebody's bringing something new to the table. Oh my God, I love it. That's so cute, Adrian. Phenomenal. Literally, when she told me that, I screamed. I was like, this is going to be great. No, so I love that. And I mean, this is the Midwest, so potlucks are a big thing. We only do thing. potlucks. I love potlucks. I do. If I ever get married, which is probably never going to happen, I want it to be a potluck. <laughs> no, I don't bring <laughs> only alcohol. Yeah. Because that is who I am as a person. <laughs> I would just bring alcohol. Maybe some Needed. Potlucks. Needed. Yeah. So, the question okay. is... Which, I don't know if they wanted me to say their name, so I'm just not going to. But um, this person asked, why is it that disenfranchised persons are always put in a position where they have to take on the responsibility to challenge the dominant norms of any given space? That is a really tough one. Mm -hmm. And you had sent it to me in advance, and I'd been thinking about it. And the only answer I could really come up with was they woke up first. Right. They didn't necessarily wake up entirely, but they woke up to at least that one problem. And because of that, and they decided they wanted to do something about it. Because mm-hmm. just because you woke up doesn't mean that you're not going to go back to sleep or that you're not. Like, there are plenty of people who are very happy that we have gay marriage and they're like, the fight is over. We're good. And it's like, what about housing? And what about all of these other rights that we still don't have that literally threaten our lives Mm -hmm. you know like great i can get married i can still also lose my job and my housing in every single state i've ever lived in in my life you know so i think for me what it comes down to is whatever it was that sparked whatever it was that woke them up also did enough or also was impactful enough that they decided i need to do something about this Mm -hmm. to change it and it's sort of this catch-22 in a way where If I want to become a better person, if I want to really do 
social justice work in a way that will actually benefit people, I'm going to have to learn from people of color Mm -hmm. because I'm a white person, which means there is a burden in many ways placed on people of color to educate me in some way. However, there are ways to kind of not necessarily get around that burden, but to be cognizant of it, which is what I was trying to get at earlier when I talked about why I like listening to podcasts so much Mm -hmm. and why I read so much because somebody can make something that is just this pure expression of themselves. That could be a novel, a podcast, a song, a short story, et cetera, and so forth. Maybe they like just make me a really good coffee because they're a barista and like they do coffee art and that is how they express themselves. But, you know, I can experience that and Mm -hmm. get nearer to them because of it, Mm -hmm. which helps a little bit, can help me stay awake, can help wake me up in other ways, yeah. but ultimately I think it's just they woke up first and were willing to do something about it and are just waiting for everybody else to get with it and wake mm-hmm. up too. Yeah, I think... Which isn't satisfying. No, it's not enough. It doesn't feel like it's enough. Yeah. And I think that's what's so difficult about the question is that you... If it's the burden of the... Do- like, it's the burden of the dominant ones or, like, the... Like, what... I don't even know what the question was. I'm mean, um, like, hold on. Yeah. I feel like I just, like, went the other direction. Like, you have to challenge the dominant mm-hmm. norms or the dominant culture that's in that space, um, which means that, like, if I'm in, like, a meeting and I'm doing work for people who are um, trans, I have to be very cognizant about the way that I take up that space or the way that I sit in that mm-hmm. room. And because of, like, the work that I do as an advocate in um, at uh, KCAVP or something of that nature, like, mm-hmm. I am a, in a position of power and I'm, uh, like, already in a position of power because of the positions that I'm in, but, like, also who I am is, like, mm-hmm. a presumed cisgender man or, like, um, a masculine human mm-hmm. in that space. Like, and it's difficult, I guess, because I also feel the need that I have to challenge cultural norms for di- for mm-hmm. um, dominant norms for other people all the time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's my job. Like, I just feel like that's my job. Yeah. Where there's a lot of times where it's like, okay, I have to listen to the, like, I have to listen to this person teach me about stuff so I feel better about knowing that, like, this is how the system works and I'm, mm-hmm. like, educating myself, but I'm not going to challenge it ever. And I feel like that's what I run into a lot mm-hmm. because even with this podcast and, like, um, vocalizing voices that don't get to, like, be vocalized a lot, I'm challenging the dominant norm. Mm-hmm. Um, creating and, like, um, curating spaces that have a whole bunch of people who are not the dominant yeah. norm together, that's challenging the dominant norm. And yeah. It's because when you wake up, you're realizing something that has always, you're marking something that has always been unmarked. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's, oh, I can't remember who it is, but there is an essay about, like, the unmarkedness of whiteness. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, if you are a white person, you don't see your whiteness. You have to wake up at some point and realize that you are white. And then you have to try and learn to talk about that. And white people don't really know how to talk about race. I don't really, I'm, I, you know, I have come far in the, you know, six or so years since I really woke up to the fact that, oh yeah, and you actually really do have a racial identity and you have a racial identity that is based on the oppression of literally everybody else. And Mm -hmm. you need to deal with that and you need to work through it. And 
make it not a thing or right. make it less as much of a little of a I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you know, I need to, I need to sit with that. I need Mm -hmm. to know that. and I need to be cognizant of it. Just like cis people don't really know how to talk about gender because they've never been forced to really deeply examine their gender. Just like straight people don't really know how to talk about their sexuality because they've never been forced to really like think about what their sexuality and what it means and how Mm -hmm. they experience it. You know, all of these, like, think of how many times, like, you've had people, you've seen people reorient themselves around me when they know I have a peanut allergy. And suddenly it's not just me checking labels, it's everybody else checking labels because suddenly they know that this is a thing. Yeah. You know, so. And so it's, I feel like the, to answer the question necessarily is, like, once you wake up, you have to do something while you're awake you can Mm -hmm. be awake and not do anything or like so like i can be awake and my eyes can be open and i can actively just be sitting Mm -hmm. there being like i get it i completely get it but i'm not going to take any action to reconstruct anything i'm not going to try and have the hard conversations or i i don't know like this question makes me think of um like black people who are super here for liberation, but not willing to see liberation with the ideology of being, like, at the same level as white people. They want to be above it. Mm -hmm. They want to exist in a world where there is no whiteness, but that in itself is oppressive in a very, like, nuanced way. For, like, like, not whiteness as a system, white people. That's better language choices okay explain a little bit more because i also would love to live in a world (laughs) without whiteness because whiteness is such a big problem like if in you know 300 300 years (laughs) i'm being optimistic people um you know if there was a world where we weren't struggling with whiteness because whiteness didn't exist like i could and maybe I wouldn't still be a white person then because we would have different terms, but getting rid of that unfair power structure mm-hmm. would be great, you know? And that's the thing. What does the world look like without that unfair power structure? And how can we get to that point mm-hmm. without disenfranchising somebody else? And I feel like that's the conversation that a lot of people aren't having. They're looking at the system, but they're not reconstructing it or mm. dismantling it completely and thinking of a way to build something that does not disenfranchise a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that translates over into the systems that are working against the system in itself. Yeah. I liked that you used the word translates there because mm. it has trans in it and I can make a joke. <laughs> um, but that's a lot of my problem with queer theory. Mm-hmm. Queer theory is like, we're going to dismantle everything. We're going to deconstruct. And it's like, okay, now that we got all these pieces, what next? Whereas I find that trans studies, because... It's about constantly, like, deconstructing and reconstructing your own gender. Mm-hmm. We can take that as well and apply it to other things. So, like, okay, the queerness deconstructs it, but the transness is like, yeah, and we're going to build something new, something better, something more inclusive um, so that we can get, hopefully, to that future place, mm-hmm. get to something that might be a part of the process but could also be the end of the process. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I guess the question is... They woke up, and everybody else doesn't know that they haven't woken up yet. Yeah. I don't know. Which I don't is know if we even not like, a... Got to where we needed to get to. I don't know. It's just... It is such a tough question, and I wish yeah. I had a better answer, but that was all I could come up with. Like, they just... Because the people don't know that they haven't woken up yet, 
they don't know that they are placing a burden yeah. on other people. And if they've woken up, but they aren't doing anything about it, they don't care that they're placing a burden on other people. Right. Or they might not be in a place where they feel safe enough to start doing something about the burden that they are coming to recognize. <sighs> That's all. You know, because yeah. not everybody can safely engage in the work and do the work, whatever the work is in this case. Yeah. And what does the work even look like? And how can you do the work if you're like differently abled or like one of your other identities plays into the like factor of like, yeah. why that work can't be done? Access is a big part of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was the first potluck. It was good potluck. It was a good potluck. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I guess the food was good. Um, so now we're on to dessert. My favorite part. So let's talk about RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> yes. This is who we are. Yes. Literally, I have had conversations with Anne where it's like, oh, we have to go back to work and we will stay talking for a <laughs> solid extra hour about RuPaul's Drag Race. But actually, Ugh, I'm ready. Okay. okay. So. What's new in the world of RuPaul? All-Stars 3. Yep. Top three go. Oh, God. I don't even, like... I just, like... I wish I could care about All-Stars 3. Wait, what? But, like, I just... I don't know. It's such an interesting group of queens. Like, I love Chi-Chi Devane, and I think she would be in my top three because she is so precious and so wonderful. Um, I love Milk. And I also love, um, I can see her, Trixie Mattel. I I love Trixie Mattel as well. But, like, I'm just fascinated by some of the queens who are on this season because some of them are the ones who really pushed the bar. Mm -hmm. Like, Milk was constantly told she wasn't feminine enough, you know, because she was doing much more of a gender fuck Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then in her promo picture, it's this like really femme face with this very mask body, like a bodybuilder, but a male bodybuilder type of body. And I don't know what to do with this. And then you've (laughs) got like Ben de la Creme and then, oh, she did the like, her death becomes her. It was like really fascinating. It was like a rooster. Um, Kennedy Davenport. Kevin Kennedy Davenport. Like, I'm just fascinated to see how she's going to deal with some of these other queens because she does a very specific type of drag for right. the most part, she's and she is polished. She's polished and together. She is a full Texas queen. Yeah, she makes it work. So I just, it's the dynamic that I'm mm-hmm. really struggling with. Like, yeah, I love almost every single queen who's going to be on the season, but I just don't get it, and I'm surprised that some of them came back yeah that's i think that's what it is i can't get around like some of them actually having come back because the show didn't seem like it was that positive for them the first time like i'm so still frustrated about the fact that aja's gonna be in all stars 3 i like i know there's like two season eight queens which i can deal with because whenever um all star season Mm -hmm. two came out like you had two season seven yeah but it was a like it gave the season eight queens a break i didn't need to see asha again yeah and i just i I don't know if she's grown enough to actually really do well and be anything other than a filler queen the second time again right like if we look at where she was in this season and where she was at the reunion special like she didn't really show much growth and Mm. i'm not just talking about her look and her makeup and the way she puts things together i'm also talking about like 
emotional growth, mental growth, all yeah. of these other types of growth. Whereas like Farah, you know, we could see this huge growth in Farah throughout the season. That doesn't mean I want to see Farah again, ever. again, <laughs> ever. <laughs> right. I've been blinded by her highlighter a couple of times. Could not see for two days. And I'm good. But yeah, just, I don't know. I mean, there wasn't really anybody from the most recent season who I thought was like, ready for all stars right right away because even peppermint as great as she was like i want her to be able to like take some time do her thing and then come back no, and like, kill Oscar's it for peppermint's gonna win and i'm not gonna ask any questions exactly like i would be so excited like, if they would have rested it but they also can't put shay on right away because she would just come in kill it right but she would be way better than alaska because she wouldn't have this like crybaby moment in the back like she would just actually come in and be great like when it came i yeah shay versus sasha was just as emotional emotional as jujubee versus raven i was broken right i was (laughs) broken because it was like this star-crossed lover kind of thing and they weren't even in a relationship i was messed up and then they chose emotions by Whitney Houston I for them know. to listen to. And like, I'm already like, I, I'm a Whitney Houston fit mm-hmm. stan. Like, I am just a Whitney Houston stan. So mm-hmm. for them to play one of my favorite Whitney Houston songs and then Sasha to show out the way that she did and Shay <gasps> literally just being like, you know, I just found out that I'm going up against my girl and I'm just going to like, give it to her. Because it like, I felt like Shay gave up. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm just like, I know the moment that Shay gets put on an All-Stars, she's going to win it. The same thing, though, she can't be on the same season as Peppermint. Because I exactly. can't deal with that emotional break. Like, exactly. Break I will die. Mm-hmm. I can't die through a TV show. Unless I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> y'all try to bug me. Don't die on a TV show, please. <laughs> I want to be on um, Scared Famous. <laughs> I want to be on Scared Famous. I like... Like, they should give me, like, famous. a documentary show where I just travel the world and do this, but, yeah. like, with random strangers. I would watch that. It's like Humans of New York, but with Isaac, and I just, like, walk but, around like, and be talk safe. To <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Completely dangerous. I have to take risks. That's the only way that I can live my best life. What else? Okay, wait. I have to um, tell you okay, my yeah. top three, because we okay. went mm-hmm. down we did. the rabbit hole that we always go down. Um... Shangela, because she's my girl. I do Hallelujah. love Shangela. Um, but she's also a queen who has grown so much. I'm sorry. I will let you finish your top three, and then I apologize. I interrupted. You're so good. Um, Shangela. Mm-hmm. I love your interruptions, actually. They make me think more. I love it. Um, Shangela, I really want Trixie to win it all. Um, and then Milk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm more curious... Who do you think the 10th queen is? Usually I'm like deep in the Reddit like yeah. I'm usually like on top of this. I'll like ask my queen friends who like know these queens personally, like the information that mm-hmm. I need. I need to know who the 10th queen is. And I think I've like not looked at stuff because I want to actually be surprised. Yeah, time. and I've done the same thing because I also want to be surprised this time around. Um... I mean, because I was kind of surprised, but not really surprised when they were like, and it's Cynthia. I knew that was going to be Cynthia because of the way that Cynthia went out in season eight. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of want it to be some queen from one of the queens from season one or season two. Because, like, look at Tati. She came back. 
And I mean, she, again, has grown so much. I mean, she was already good in her first, when she was in season two, and then has really come far. But because especially, I mean, we also have to look at like the trajectory that RuPaul's Drag Race has been on when season four hit and they got that set change and they got more money and better lighting and became more mainstream Mm -hmm. and switched. They were no longer free online. You had to start paying for your access. Sorry, things changed and now they're not on logo anymore mm-hmm. they're on vh1 vh1 yeah vh1. yeah vh1 and they've got more money and they are going for a very specific audience but an audience that is very disconnected from where the show was when it started right, like they have no I guess who remembers like bb and oh, angina BB. like when angina comes out is hiv positive right. and it's this like really intense moment and we just like don't ever really think about it it's and, it's like yeah. rupaul's drag race became like this like queer thing like it was queer when it first came out mm-hmm. right and now it's just like gay and specifically a white gay thing white upper class gay like when you talk yeah. about white gay with the trademark the, the yes trademark, the trademark gay when we know what gay exactly. you're actually talking about like it's so frustrating because especially somebody who's followed drag race and like mm-hmm. even just followed like pageants and stuff like that like yeah Still trying to pull myself back together, but who knows if I'm ever going to actually do drag again. But um, that whole process of, like, y'all don't know what it's like to, mm-hmm. like, like literally, like, hold your hair up and not have, like, bobby pins to hold it down. So you have to use, like, rope and tie and stuff that mm-hmm. you buy at the craft store to make yeah. these things work. Like, where it is a creation. It was work to exactly. do. You don't buy your games. That's what I miss. Like, season three was one of my favorites because it was one of the ones that was all about the craft. And like, they were like, constantly... did that. Exactly. Did that. They were constantly sewing garments and making things. But we can also see how, as Drag Race has mm-hmm. become more mainstream. You have to be this very specific type of drag star. Mm-hmm. Nobody really cares if you can make a dress. Like, yeah, you have to do it because you're on the show, but, right. like, you can squeak by. You have to be able to, like, sing and dance and, ta- you know, and do your little routine right. and, like, be a social media star. Because it's not, it's Instagram drag now. Drag has, mm-hmm. like, switched its game up. Well, RuPaul's Drag Race yes. specifically has became yes. Instagram drag. And I... It's not that I can't stand Instagram drag. I get the importance of Instagram drag, Mm -hmm. but that's the reason why everybody loved Valentina. Valentina was an Instagram drag star. The same way the reason why everybody liked Naomi, 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 oh my God, Mm -hmm. Naomi Smalls and uh, Kimchi. Mm -hmm. Kimchi was an artist. Naomi Smalls was an Instagram drag model. Yeah. And that's why I love Kimchi so much because she, I actually cried really hard. Like, I love Bob. Bob was a great winner. That was my fave. But I, I just, I, I had fallen so in love with Kimchi because the growth she went through mm-hmm. on the show, her artistry, and how far she was pushing drag. Right. But at the same time, like, Bob fucking killed it and was great. And I love Bob the Drag Queen. But Bob is also a little problematic now because Bob has the whole purse first thing. And I love the song. But the song starts out with the famous quote from Paris is Burning. Mm -hmm. It is a well-known fact that a lady do carry an evening bag. Mm -hmm. And she's now making a lot of money off of that phrase, which she has just sort of turned into her own. But doesn't. Which is not her own. And I don't. 
I think if Bob really just sat there and addressed it, yes. Bob would say something. I'm going to give Bob that space. Oh, <laughs> but, no, and Bob, Bob absolutely would, would, because Bob also does a lot of activism, which is part mm. of the reason why I love, I love Bob. Bob. <laughs> it, like, Bob actually does activism, whereas Trinity came in and was like, I've got my Orlando outfit. And it's like, yes, but... And that's something that I wanted to get into, and we're going to go there because this is very important. Okay. And drag, when it was first created was the community space. See how I tied everything together? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm good at this. Um, Drag is about community and creating those spaces where people are Mm -hmm. able to be themselves and break down systems and systemic work. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about Paris's burning and things like that, those communities were for safety. Those Mm -hmm. were families. That's what the family comes from. Like, all of those things were to save black and brown queer people. Yep. Now we're living in this world where it is so, it's great to be accepted for who you are and all those other things. Black and brown queer people mm-hmm. in ways are still homeless, are still struggling, are still being pushed oh, out. Yeah. And the thing that they had is so mainstream, they can't even use it anymore. Yep. So with that being said, let's talk about drag and cultural appropriation. Yes. And how drag has become this like pinnacle and this like huge frame of cultural appropriation not only from like the gay trademark folks but Mm -hmm. just people in general like drag has been famed to be this like oh my gosh i love queer people i love the gays because i watched one episode of rupaul's drag race and that fishy queen Mm -hmm. really did look like a girl and it's like now we're playing into binary problems now we're playing into all of these issues and the performativity of allyness where you think just because you can say the word fishy and you can say hunty and you say yes when you should not say yes you know because it's the white people who say yes and it's like oh my god please stop like i will occasionally use yes with the a in it but only in very specific contexts because i understand that like yes i may be queer but i am a white queer person which means that language is not actually mine right and i'm very strategic about when i use it and it is typically to prove a political point to somebody about like do you see what i just did there do you see how it's like not actually okay for really for me to be using those words you know but it was also a process for me to get there because they're like when i was really young and watching RuPaul and it was my one like real connection to queerness and to some sort of queer culture I absolutely went around saying things that I should not have said and then I started learning and I grew up and was like okay and I get that for identity politics and formulating Mm -hmm. who you are as a person and like sure like I hit of all the colloquiums because that's just how I talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, genuinely, like, when I first started and I learned a new word or, like, learned mm-hmm. something, like, I want to use it. Like, yeah. that's just how things go. Um, but at the same time, like, I understand my context. If I'm going to be problematic and I'm not going to change my problematic behavior mm-hmm. because I don't feel like it's as big of a deal, at least yeah. know why it's problematic. At least know what you're doing and where you're coming mm-hmm. from. Like, don't stand up on a stage and have a platform and sit here and say that you care about all these pe- types of people, but you're constantly doing microaggressions while you're performing. Exactly. Like, well, and part of it is this, like, taking it away from the history mm-hmm. as well. Like, people will throw around, the library is open and do it in like that kind of way where they're not actually channeling where it originally comes from. They only know how to say it like Rue says it or like it's said on the show, but they don't actually understand where it comes from and who was using it. And And like why the library was so important. Exactly. Like 
I'm just going to have to drop into this history real quick because it's so important for, like, even now, white people get, not white people, not all white people, but, like, whiteness in itself Mm -hmm. gets so irritated in the way that black people talk to each other. Absolutely. And they're so frustrated by the, like, why you guys, like, clowning each other or, like, doing jokes or stuff like that because that is how we express love. Mm -hmm. The library and reading and all of those things, that's love. Exactly. And people don't get that because it's not the culture that you were raised in. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, like, the library is open. Reading is so messy. Being a shady queen. All of those kinds of things. The reason why I feel shady and the reason why shade became even a thing was because it was taken out of context Mm -hmm. and put into a space. And then black people also had a word for that. And so they all took that one, too. (laughs) Yeah. And now people are making a lot of money off of it entire careers right. are made off of it and that's like i when i teach and I, i've already taught this this semester we watched most of paris is burning with mm-hmm. the 101 students and i made sure to make a very i was like there's ball culture there's drag culture and then there's what you think of which is rupaul's drag race which is this very separate thing like drag when it uh, it got its start was oftentimes just about this like artistic performance of a gender Mm -hmm. whereas like ball culture was much more and is much more about performing a realness of becoming real and that is not just about gender that is also about class Mm -hmm. it is also about race and in this country we oftentimes will say race when we are also trying to talk about class because we just assume if we say black we can automatically talk about low-income people and we push those two together which is part of what ball culture stands against exactly. and has always stood against. And that's the thing. like, the But cate- people don't know that. Yeah, it's like the categories, even in ball culture in itself. Like, if I'm going to give you military, like, member realness, mm-hmm. I'm going to come down this runway in a full, like, suit that I got from the, um, from the what do you call it, DAV, mm-hmm. and y'all going to think that I am in exactly. the military. I'm going to be positioned correctly. I'm going to know everything of the in and out, the ins and outs of the movements exactly. of the military that I am serving you. Like any branch that I'm serving you, I know they move differently. Mm-hmm. I know how they operate differently. Exactly. And that's the difference between ball culture and drag. You'll look culture. at rank as well. Exactly. Like... The way that it like the way that it functions. Mm-hmm. And Nobody talks about those categories. Everybody thinks that when they think of ball culture, they think of vogue. Mm-hmm. They think of like the underground thing, which is like now it's own completely like culture. You can take voguing system. exercise classes, like, it's, oh, which just oh. reminds me of when Jamila talks about her Whole Foods yoga. Yes, and it's like yeah, yeah. Whole Foods yoga. Yeah, that's what it all comes down to. And I mean, and then there's the other type of cultural appropriation that happens as well. Like, remember when Raja does her whole like African princess thing later in season three? And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. when she snatched me bald over that um, Native American realness gig that she pulled out. And I was like, yes, give it to me because you are indigenous. I believe that this is, like, perfect and amazing. And she did that African Princess one. I was like, I rewatched that episode actually recently. And I was hurt. Like, hurt. And there's, like, there are some challenges where it's, like, you just have to do it. Yeah. But... But but no, you don't actually have to you do it. You just think it. you have to do it. Because what was her face who did the horrible turquoise thing? Because she got the Native American indigenous person from YMCA. 
And she just did like the most stereotypical, I'm a white person doing Native American kind of thing. Was that this last it was, season? I think so. She's the one the who Wimes? was the Broadway queen who did the really good read of Michelle Visage, but was painted green the whole time. Alexis Michelle. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Because it's like, yeah, you got dealt a bad hand, but like you could have done it way different. You could have put yeah. a little thought into it. You could have, and you were given plenty of time, girl, with cameras right. on you to like talk about this and why you were doing what you were doing and your thought process behind it, and you didn't utilize that. No, and that's the thing. I I say this all the time. It's like when the day that, that somebody puts me on reality television, because I'll get there one day, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll get there one day. <laughs> uh, when it happens, all it's going to be is me pushing boundaries. And it's going to be like, I'm going to make the narrative that I want that they mm-hmm. don't think that they can make me do because they're going to try and paint me as an angry black man. And I'm just going to be like, bet. Mm-hmm. And watch me do it gracefully with a social justice lens. like. But will you stay on the show in that nope. case? Like, <laughs> like look, look at Adore. Adore, thank God, left the show because mm-hmm. it clearly was not a healthy place for her. I think of Kenny on the most recent season of The Bachelorette and how yeah. I was so glad that he, I was like, thank God you were going home to your daughter and getting away from Lee and all mm-hmm. of the other like bullshit that is this show because that poor man had to work. He knew exactly how they were going to paint him. He worked around it in every single anyway. way. And Drag Race does the exact same thing. You can tell when a queen walks through the door exactly who she's supposed to be for the season. And... Yeah. It's so performative. It is. So performative. But that's also reality television, which is something that I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So one episode, eventually, in the future, we're going to just sit here and do a reality roast for a whole entire podcast segment. I don't know who else we can bring into into the space, but I know... That that would be everything. Oh my gosh, yes, please. We can definitely do that next time. It'll be so fun. For sure. Because oh real there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, once you mentioned the Bachelorette and reality I was like, TV. We're about to and I was like, no, I don't want to like bring it up. But just like it's another really good current example of mm-hmm. the way that because of the whiteness that is at the center of reality TV. They're expecting people to fulfill very specific roles, and it's just so hard to watch the person know that and and S- still fall victim to it. And but I don't know if he fell victim he didn't, yeah, he to didn't it because fall victim to it because he got out of it, exactly. which a lot of the time you don't get out of it unscathed. But we could, but he didn't get out unscathed because you could just yeah. see the emotion it's, on his face, and you like, and I obviously can't know exactly what he's going through. I can mm-hmm. I can barely know what he's going through, but like I can see the systems that are putting him through it, and I know mm-hmm. that that is fucked up. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, All right. Closing. Anything else you want to bring into the space before we leave? Tell people your <laughs> social medias if you want to, or. Any events coming up? Um, well, first, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. I am just honored to be included and to have like had this like really awesome conversation with you about things that we've talked about before, but not necessarily 
in this way. Mm-hmm. I do not really have the social medias because I spend a lot of time studying it and I know how it works and it terrifies me. <laughs> so like I have an Instagram account, but it's mostly pictures of my cats, but it is named after my drag persona, which is the Android. Yeah. Um, because I bring my academic work into my personal life and That's sometimes turn it into a performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, art piece, particularly. Yeah. Working on a couple of those right now, but no, just thank you for sharing the space, for inviting me in, for mm-hmm. sharing your thoughts and opinions, just as you always do. Yes, I mean, I'm a very opinionated hoe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, it's part of why um, I love you. Yes, thank you so much for coming and being here today. Um, just some like regular run through things. Follow mm-hmm. us on the social medias at the underscore table underscore pod everything will be listed at the bottom um if you feel the need to pay me or and because if i get paid for things that i can pay my guests for their time and labor definitely hit up the venmo that is going to be in the bottom they came oh, back. They came oh, back. Apparently, we need to get married we're, now. We're, now we need to get married. Mm, that's gonna um, go so bad. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't How do you feel about an open marriage? I mean, I'm down. We could definitely do open marriages. So now, um, you've heard it here first. Um, me and Anna are gonna get married. It's gonna be open because the people who keep coming back told us we need to get married. This is amazing. Perfection. <laughs> Such a great time. Well, guys, um, everything will be posted at the bottom of this episode link box thing, whatever they're called. Um, Definitely um, rate and subscribe on iTunes and Mm -hmm. SoundCloud and all those things. And we'll see you next time at the table. Bye. Bye.